welcome to Mormon Book Reviews or an Evangelical Encounters the Restoration. Well, folks, uh, this is a very exciting episode that I, uh, I'm so glad we're going to do. And I just wanted to, before we did that, I want to do a little housekeeping. You know, my, my Facebook audience is probably aware of this, but, you know, I did my interview with Rick Bennett on Gospel Tangents. And of course, they have the uh, transcript available um, on Amazon. So for those of you who want the transcript of my interviews with uh, Rick Bennett, it is available for $6. And this is a picture of Rick and I um, at his house in his living room Sunday morning in Lehigh, Utah. He, he loaned me his Gospel Tangents tie so that we could then, uh, I could go to church properly dressed uh, for the occasion. And that was my first church service uh, in the uh, main branch or, or the Utah branch, if you will, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But the very first church of the restoration that I attended was a wonderful church called the Church of Jesus Christ. And they have a very unique history and story. Now, those of you, of course, I've had uh, Daniel Stone in, who wrote the William Bickerton biography. I also want everybody to know that the very second episode of my program was my book review of this. The first, of course, was uh, Christopher Thomas's Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon, and then this book. So for those of you who have been checking out the Daniel Stone interview, also check out the Bickerton uh, review that I gave. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I want to uh, announce to you that I have a wonderful guest, Becky Tarbuck, who is the daughter of hymn writer for the Church of Jesus Christ, Arlene Buffington. Uh, Becky, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. And thanks for putting up for all the little uh, prelude there, I, but I wanted to get some info out to my folks, and uh, thank you for your patience with that. But Becky, I, I want to thank you because it's it's the craziest thing, you know. So the first church I go to, of course, Church of Jesus Christ. Now, you, you feel, folks have to understand that because I've been doing a lot of traveling lately, I haven't had an opportunity to do a lot of reading and research for my to prep, and also I don't have any inventory of uh, of interviews. So it was like Monday, and I'm like, you know, I just dawned on me I haven't taped my Friday night interview, and I don't know who's coming on Thursday. And about an hour or two later, I get a ding, a text and saying, hey, this is Becky Tarbuck. I really enjoyed blah, 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 giving me just this, you know, really cool feedback for my interview with Josh Gailey. And uh, I realized right then and there, oh, I've got my Thursday interview. So <laughs> it all worked out and I knew it would. Um, so Becky, you for whatever reason, you decided to text me right at the moment that I was thinking that I needed a guest. And thank you so much for uh, doing that for me. And um so I've done enough talking. Now it's time for Becky to tell the story of Arlene Buffington. Uh, Becky, let's just start from the beginning. Talk a little bit about your mother's childhood and maybe your, her parents encountering the Church of Jesus Christ as well. Okay. Um, it started probably back around 1941. Um, my great-grandparents uh, met the church. My grandmother had a neighbor, Dorothy Andresik, and her gift was spreading the gospel. They lived in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. And uh, Sister Dorothy would go out on her porch. She was a member of the church. And she would go out onto her porch and play her guitar and sing hymns. And uh, she was very kind to my grandmother more and, in, and invited them to church. And uh, my grandparents, uh, my great-grandparents, Catherine and Nicholas Riddosh, they went to the Church of Jesus Christ in McKees Rocks, and they fell in love with the gospel. And my grandmother Riddosh used to call it the beautiful, beautiful gospel, and they were baptized. And my grandmother, which is my mother's mother, Eva Moore, she married Jim Moore, 
Uh, she said she was a seeker of truth all her life. And she said, mom, you did the best thing you could have ever done by get, be, becoming baptized in the church of Jesus Christ. Because my grandmother uh, was happy that they had left the Catholic church in which my grandmother was raised. And she said that you did the best thing you could have ever done. She said, well, if it's the best thing I've ever done, what about you and Jim? She says, oh, you leave us alone. We belong to a big church. And at that time, she and my grandfather were going to the Baptist church. My grandfather was taking his Bible to work and reading it at lunchtime. And my grandmother was teaching the ladies group there in the Baptist church, but they still weren't satisfied. And they began like my great-grandparents attending the Church of Jesus Christ. And my grandmother, her testimony was that, uh, you know, since she sought God all her life, she said anytime anybody was talking about God, she'd get closer to hear what they had to say. And she also was a self-proclaimed scholar, although she never went to college, but she read everything she could on religion and God. So, um, but she thought she was the Christian and my grandpa was the sinner. And that's my mother's parents. So they began attending the church in McKee's Rocks. And one day, oh, and she, she prayed. She prayed to God. If you do something with Jim, I'm going to the church and I'm going to ask for my baptism. She got so excited. She said she was breading liver. And she threw the liver in the can and put it on the shelf. Don't know what happened to it until this day. She was so excited. They went to the elder's uh, house and asked for their baptism. Uh, I, I suppose it was, it was Christmas Eve. She said, we weren't looking for Santa Claus. We were looking for Jesus Christ to come into our home and they were baptized. And that was the beginning of um, them coming into the church. My mother was six years old. Uh, she had two siblings, but she was six years old. And she remembers after her parents joined the church, she remembers her father sitting down in the living room. and first time she ever saw him or heard him sing a hymn he sang down at the cross where my savior died and she remembers sitting on his lap and just watching him and she said there was a definite change in their home and i have to say my great grandmother redosh the one who used to call it the beautiful beautiful gospel she had a dream after she came into the church and jesus threw a rainbow around her family and uh you know, the rainbow is a sign of a promise. And we know God keeps all his promises. If we serve him, he'll bless us. And he surely has blessed our family. I thank God for that. It's such a rich heritage. And I'm happy to, to tell it, you know, to um, tell what God has done for us. So um, my grandparents uh, were baptized and their home was a place of gathering. It was the piano was there. My grandmother cooked. They were dairy farmers. That's a lot of work. Milking those cows morning, night. They never missed a meeting. They were at the early church service. Church was all day on Sunday back then, Wednesday night, some Fridays, some Saturday fasting and prayer. I mean, they were there, but their house was a place of gathering. My grandmother cooked. She was a great cook. Of course, they had all the chickens, the eggs, the beef uh, from the farm, and she made pies of all kinds. Sunday, everybody would gather in there. It seems like everybody was invited. 
and it would be testimony and the ministry talking about the scriptures and the piano would be playing and people would sing. It was, it was wonderful. The kids would play, you know, they'd be running around the house. And uh, my mom said back then the, the brothers and sisters would be in the house talking about the scriptures and singing and they had a rooster. They would, they would play with that rooster. All the kids, you know, that were there visiting, they would go out the back, they'd watch for the rooster, go out the back door run around the house and her little brother Jimmy would have the broom he would be the last one and they would play games like that while the brothers and sisters were in the house testifying and enjoying fellowship so um then let me see my grandmother had a wonderful experience um as I said they were raised Catholic and I know a lot of wonderful Catholic people so that's not a anyway a disparagement but um she prayed it was uh, when she came into the church she wanted to see Jesus so um she said she prayed for six months she said all she knew was Mary hmm. and after about six months of praying that way you know that scripture asking you shall receive knock and it shall be opened unto you um she had a dream one night and she dreamt that she saw Jesus and she said, I was able to look right into his eyes and I cried out, Jesus, Jesus. And my grandfather wakened her and he said, Eva, what's the matter? She said, Jim, I just saw Jesus. And they laid back down and um, she fell asleep in, a, in another experience. Another man appeared to her. And she said, and this man, I did not know. And he said, I am Angel Moroni. And she said, yes, yes, Angel Moroni. She said, we were babies in the gospel. We didn't know everything, but she recognized him when he said it, of course, because we believe in the Book of Mormon. And, um, and that's what rooted and grounded our family in this church. We all believe it. And we stand on those experiences that came before us from our people we loved and trusted, which were our grandparents and our great grandparents. And so my grandfather laid down and he thought, my, my, he was a Southerner. My, my, I wish I could see something like that. And as he said, the same hour of the night, he didn't know if he was awake or asleep, but the same man appeared and said, I am Angel Moroni. And uh, so that rooted them in the gospel. Wow. Wow, this is wonderful. You know, and I think I've heard that story. I don't know if it's in Patrick McKay's book, but I know there's quite a few uh, stories from the Church of Jesus Christ. In, yes, I love that book. Yeah, and uh, so the, and I, and there's a lot of similar stories that I've heard. Now, I I lost you for just a few seconds, so I don't think you probably covered it. But um, you're, you said you're some family was, were scholars. Now, what did they think of the Book of Mormon as they were doing their investigation? into the church what was what kind of conversations did they have about the book okay my grandmother uh referred to herself as a scholar of the scriptures none of my family were scholars my grandmother didn't go to college but she read every book of religion that she could get her hands on she wanted to know god and she was a seeker of truth so well what did they think of the book of mormon mm -hmm. well they weren't scholars they were not college educated people but they fell in love with the book of mormon okay as i said because of that experience they believed wholeheartedly okay. and um 
And we do too. I mean, we just believed it. I don't know if there was an ever an experience for me personally or my parents. We accepted the gospel. We felt the spirit of God in the church and we accepted the everything that came with it. Okay. Wow. Um, so let's talk a little bit now. We've, we've got kind of the background of the world that Arlene was raised in and how they came into, uh, to, into the church. Uh, so talk a little bit about Arlene's maybe growth in the church and then maybe some of a little bit of her spiritual journey leading up to the time that she started receiving uh, these songs supernaturally. Okay, well, um, she married my dad, Bob Buffington, and they were baptized in the church on Mother's Day. Uh, I think they were maybe 19 years old, something like that. And uh, I'll just say about my dad, after he met the church, he had a dream after he was baptized and he dreamt that he was in the woods and, you know, Pennsylvania is heavily wooded, mountainous hills, valleys. And uh, he said, if you've ever been in the mountains where what we call the woods, uh, it's very easy to get lost and turned around. And in this dream, a, he was in the woods and he was lost and it started to get dark and fear came upon him and began to run. And he looked and he saw a light out in the distance and he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to run for that light. And when he got there, it was the Monongahela Church building. That's the headquarters of our church. And there was a man standing out front. And he said to my dad, these are your people. And my dad went in and there was an empty seat in the back. It was full. Everybody was singing. Mabel Biggerton was leading the singing. He sat in the back and he said it was just so beautiful. And when he awakened and he remembered laying there, remembered his dream, he knew it was the Lord out front. And he said, yes, Lord, these are my people. So my mom and dad, they got baptized at a young age. They were faithful. My dad was called to be a teacher and then to be an elder and an evangelist in the church. My mother was, my dad was um, ah, so wonderful. So, so, so wonderful. He'd been loving and good and everything he loved. He used to say people are my business. So my mother, conversely, was very quiet. My dad used to joke and say, I was married to her for 10 years and my family didn't even know her. Mm. Very quiet, shy. Um, uh, so my mother, it, it was in uh, 1976 when she got the song. So up until that time, she had four children, lost one in a car accident at the age of 18. Um, so she had a few experiences before the songs of Zion, just a few. One where my grand, where my father's grandmother was, uh, she had passed away. And, you know, we were raised that, you know, if you're not baptized, you know, you might not make it right. You might, you know, and uh, so she just thought it was heaven and hell, you know, but uh, anyway, uh, my father's grandmother appeared to her in the dream and she had been attending church but she was in a wheelchair she couldn't go down and get baptized she was very sick one day she called for my my mother's father Jim Moore to come and he she wanted to confess all her sins and um he said you don't need to do that but anyway that was her way of repenting of her sins and she, and um 
my father used to pick her up for church and my grandfather, they were Nazarenes. My grandfather said to her one day, mother, the house that's divided will not stand. And she said, well, so long as it doesn't fall on me, I'm going with Bob. And she went, you know, anyway, she passed away, but she hadn't had the opportunity to be baptized because she was sick. And my mother had the dream about her and uh, where the grandma appeared to her in a dream. And my mother said, grandma, are you all right? And she said, I am in paradise. Mm. And my mother said that taught her like a lesson. You know, she was young. She thought of heaven and hell. And of course, we know there's paradise and also that you know she didn't have the opportunity to be baptized and and so anyway my mother she had that dream and she had a couple other little things but one day my mother we were teenagers and my mother was sitting at the table none of us were baptized we don't believe in getting baptized at eight we believe whenever you know at, when you're at the age of accountability and you ask that's when you know it could be when you're older or whatever None of us were baptized and she was sitting at the table and she was wondering about her children and why weren't they baptized, the children of the saints, so they would be called. And uh, all at once words began to come to her uh, so fast she couldn't write them down. And it was and it was telling how our young people think, you know, I'm grown mother, now I must find life's meaning. I'm older father and I'm too old to cry. You know, um, anyway, but in the end it says, um, I found, uh, let me see, oh wondrous grace, God found my place for me. It's in the gospel, you know, it tells about how they go out in this world and they search for life's meaning, but they come to realize that uh, it's in the church. And um, so that was her first song. So she notified the brothers and sisters. I guess she went to church and she said the, she said the spirit of God came down upon her and she was actually weak for two days. She hears the words and the music at the same time. I have never, 44 years, 45 years with my mother, I never saw her sit down at the table and try to put a verse together. Oh, what rhymes with this? Never. She hears the words and hears the music. And then sings it into a recorder. She would get staff paper, put the melody notes down by the piano, going up and down the piano, searching for the note. And um, so she got that song. And then uh, she told everyone how marvelous and wonderful. She just thought it was an experience. So then the next day she got another song. And she thought, my goodness, I can't call everyone and tell them it happened again. It's like saying you saw an angel and the next day you saw another one. And so it wasn't until about the ninth song, somebody said, you've been given a gift. She didn't even realize. She just thought it was like nine separate experiences or something. And up until this point, it's like 239 songs. And, um, but anyway, so that's how it started. So then um, I think she had about 58 songs on her piano. And her sister tried to help her. Another sister in the church tried to help her, but it just, it wasn't working. And so one evening we were in my parents' home, the brothers and sisters were there. I was there. We all held hands in a circle and the brother that prayed, he said, Lord, 
you know, concerning the songs of Zion, she needed somebody to help her put them on paper to make them book ready. And uh, he said, we're not going to mention any names. They knew a few musicians who could help. And he says, if you'll send someone, you know, to help with this work. Well, the next day, there's a man in our church. His name was Eugene Amarmino. She, had, she and dad had met him about 10 years prior to that. Um, but that was it. And uh, he was driving home from work. He lived in Michigan. And he said, as he was driving, the spirit spoke and said, call Sister Arlene. And, and uh, he thought, wow, that's strange, you know, driving a little further, call Sister Arlene. And then when he got home, it was call Sister Arlene now. So um, he got, he, he called, we have a church phone book, you know, with everybody's names and addresses, telephone numbers. So he called. And he said, Sister Arlene, this is Brother Eugene Amarino, and I don't even know why I'm calling. Well, he had a, I guess, a master's in music. He was a teacher of music. And he actually, he said he never knew why, but I believe this is the way to say it. In college, he took up. I don't know what the, it would be called, but so that you could arrange music. And so from that day forward, they worked together. He made many, 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 many trips to my mom and dad's home. And then they traveled all over the country and they taught the songs of Zion in our branches and missions. And his wife, Sister Donna, she sings and she would go along. My mom would tell the story. Uh, Donna would sing. Eugene would play. And they were gifted. Donna has a beautiful voice. And Eugene could make anything, any song come alive. He had the total command of the piano. And, and so they worked like that for many years. Wow. So, I, so my understanding of the process is that she, she, would, she would receive the song. Yes. And it would be in her head until the time would come when it would be the opportunity to actually write down the lyrics and do the uh, right, do the notes and everything. Right? Is that is that how it would work? Till, till the day she died, every note was in her head. She had total recall of every song that was ever given to her. But this is how it would work. She would hear the words and the music. She said to me, they always came together, and she would write them down. She would write the words down. Then she would get out the staff paper and she would go to her piano. And just like the one song that I mentioned, I'm grown mother. So she would go to the piano and she would find those notes on the piano. She would put them on the staff paper. Just, they weren't dotted quarters. They weren't half notes. They were just, you know, they looked like whole notes the way she wrote them out on the staff paper. And then she would write down the words that went with each note. And then she would get out the cassette recorder. This was till the very end. Um, and she would sing it two, three, four times on there. And she'd say, okay, Brother Eugene, I'm going to sing number, you know, number 210 or whatever it was. And she would sing it three or four or five times. My mother did not have a singing voice, but I, you know, she would, that's why she would sing it one, two, three, four times. So he could listen to it and mm -hmm. get it right. Then he would go to work and, and add the chords and the timing according to the way she sang it. And, um, and she would also tell him, I felt such joy in this song and hidden notes, joyful, you know, mm -hmm. or, 
whatever it was. And then he would, he would call her back and he would play it. Or sometimes they would be in our home. And uh, she would say, no, that note isn't right there. And, or that chord is just not right. And he was always so wonderful and say, yes, okay, Sister Arlene. And he would, she said she couldn't imagine working with anyone else. Mm. And then uh, there came a day when he became sick and God brought in Brother Phil Vignola, who I heard you're going to meet possibly. I don't know. Anyway, um, he does that for us now and um well they're all all the songs are on paper except for number 240 which i have the words i have it written on staff paper but i got to look through her cassettes and see if she sang it because oh, that's okay. the way we would know the timing and if i find that then i'll send that cassette and the words and the music to brother feel and then he'll put the last song together and it'll be included in the final volume wow so this is was really my channel changed the day that patrick mckay called me and then he started telling me about sister arlene and i remember just i i'm usually one of those people who likes to pace when i'm talking on the phone i'm kind of a high strung person i just remember he starts telling the story and i sit down on my couch and i just start smiling and i thought I've heard these stories before because I come from a charismatic background. People, you know, have these gifts in our in our movement as well. And it it just hit me in a way that I thought, oh, wait, this channel isn't going to just be secular and scholarly, but there's going to be a spiritual element to it too. Um, and that that changed the that changed the trajectory of the channel. That story right then and there told me this channel is going to go in a direction you weren't expecting, Steve. Now the spirit told me early on, he said, now don't make any plans. Uh, just let me take the lead and you follow. And so that's been my view of this whole process from the very beginning. Um, and then what really hit me was when I visited the church in the in just north of Tampa, the congregation, um, I just thought it was a few songs. And then I saw it's a whole hymnal, hardcover hymnal, Songs of Zion, which by the way, Josh Gailey is going to send me a copy of. And um, I was like, oh my goodness. I mean, I, I was shocked that it was a hymnal. And then I noticed that in the in the pews there there was also like a binder and somebody had said yeah that like 15 years later sister arlene got some more songs so we just for now we're just putting them in these binders i was like blown away because that i've never heard of anything like this before so i just thought this is a story that has to be told and and, and uh it really hit me and i just remember the people in the church um they had the hymnals open and they were singing the songs and most of them weren't even looking at the words because they knew them that well so I just, uh, it's, it's had an impact on your church and your people. This, this is like a very important thing that happened. Yes. Um, I don't want to say not to everybody and I'm not, I don't like to talk about anything like that, but not to everybody. But um, I think if you have the spirit, you know, you should be able to recognize the spirit and God did give the songs and I am a witness just like in the front of the Book of Mormon, I am a witness I was there from the beginning. She was a goodly person pure wonderful and when God gave her that gift. Well, do you know, it says about the records they'll come forth to a person who has an eye single to the glory of God. When he gave her that gift, that's what she worked on for the rest of her life. 
So the process then, so basically initially they, you, she starts traveling and they start singing the songs in the churches. They, they teach the songs to the people. So talk about the reception that people had and maybe even some maybe resistance or pushback a little bit on this uh, in the process. Just kind of talk a little bit of, about that. Well, anytime God does anything, there's always opposition. Okay. So um, one thing I do have to say, she had the total support of her husband, the total support of her family, the total support of the Imperial branch. And and there are people that love, love the songs and fell in love with them and knew they were from God. I mean, you know, like the scripture says, um, Peter, who do men say that I am? And uh, eventually he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, flesh and blood have not revealed this unto thee, Peter, but my father, which is in heaven. Well, I feel it's the same way with the gifts of God, you know. I guess it's revealed of God and some people it had no effect. Some people fought against it, but the, I think the true humble followers of Christ recognized it as a gift of God and they accepted it. They loved it. And I'll have to say this, that our home was never the same again people came from all over the church to hear the testimony to hear the songs to hear them played it seemed like at one point our dining room table was full of people it seemed like we never had a christmas without somebody being there or a sunday my grandparents had the spirit of hospitality my parents had the spirit of hospitality there were people around the table all the time and they came to hear and it was just a wonderful beginning. And uh, not everybody believed. And some people mock. Mm. I mean, that's the way it is. That's, uh, is it different in any era of time? I mean, it affected me that, you know, unbelief is very hard to bear. Mm -hmm. It's very sorrowful. And I think that's why Jeremiah says of him that he had a wound that would not heal. I'm sure that's why, but you can't dwell on um, those who don't believe. You've got, you've got to rejoice in what God has given, and the glory of God outweighed it all. No matter what happened, no matter what was said or done uh, in favor of or against, the glory of God outweighed it all. It didn't matter what anybody said. We had joy. Wow. You know, I, I, I talked a little bit about with Daniel about Arlene and actually it was so interesting because we just talked a few minutes, but I got responses, a lot of responses from LDS women who were very interested in hearing your mother's story. And um, one of the things I discussed with him is how the canonization process of both scripture and saints. Now, so the Catholics have like they canonize saints, but also they kind of pattern it after how the Bible was canonized. And one of the things was, is that um, with scripture, they would, they would include it in the canon if it was widely read and popular with people in the individual churches. So some churches made, there were some books that didn't make it in the Bible that were popular in some congregations that weren't popular in others. And so they devised this process. And so it's almost like it was organically flowed up from the bottom up. And then, and, and so it's the same thing what they do with the canonization of saints is sometimes in, in, in one of the prerequisites of uh, within Catholicism is that that did they get persecuted were they mocked 
uh, you know, and and so when when Daniel was telling me the story, I thought, boy, that there's some parallels there um, that that we have like a, a historical pattern of how something comes to be, and and so I just thought that was, and you had mentioned to me, never heard that before, and you were fascinated by that. Just talk a little bit about maybe just that whole process as well. Oh, I don't know what to say. Um, yes, she was persecuted. That's sad to say, because she was so wonderful. And the wow. gift was so wonderful. Uh, one of the songs called Passing Over the Perils, you know, that that's Paul talked about passing over the perils, all that he went through. And my dad preached a sermon on that one time. He talked about Paul, how he was beaten. He was stoned. He said, did he ever once say, maybe this isn't the will of God? No, he never said that. Well, she was given a song called Passing Over the Perils. And one of the lines says, walking over coals that never touch my feet, running after Jesus, shielded from the heat. So I could say that is a good way to answer what the unbeliever did. You always have the believer and the unbeliever, you know, you always have that. The sheep and the goats, they're not in the world, they're in the church. You know, that's why they, there's an illustration in the Bible. It's why Christ taught us about it. So we wouldn't be caught unaware. But there were many good people who embraced the songs and loved the songs. And they made copies and they contributed. You know, there were copyright fees. The songs are copyrighted and copyright fees. And uh, my mom and dad shouldered much of that along with individuals who believed and helped her along the way. She shouldered that. Wow. She shouldered that. Well, you know, just uh, reminded as you were talking, you know, the Book of Mormon talks about there's opposition in all things, uh, kind of, <laughs> this kind of shows, this is an example of that. Um, so it takes off, people start embracing it in the church what was the process then of the church recognizing this gift and deciding then that they felt the need to actually formally publish it um, in, in a hymnal format? Well, they haven't done that yet. As, uh, they haven't published the book yet. What now, the, well, no, after, I'm talking about the Songs of Zion hymnal. Yes, I am too. Yeah. Oh, that, that's not published by the church? No. Oh. No. But now, okay, so Brother Joel Gailey is our new president and before our October conference he um he did voice that they would like to do that now we have the two volumes and possibly combining it and uh so I don't know if that'll happen it hasn't happened yet okay um so yeah I just I saw the usually when you go into a church and you see the hymnal you just assume that that's published by the church so this is basically your enterprise all all on your own and you're just basically well, providing the hymnals to the church individual congregations right and so like i say um brother joel whom i really admire as an apostle and president of our church um uh he intimated that they would like to publish that and so um we haven't done it yet but i'm not ready either i gotta try to find that cassette with my mom singing number 240 which would be the last song in the book I have a, an enormous amount of 
paperwork, um, experiences and cassettes and CDs. Oh, it's the best history in the church. It's got to be. It's got to be one of the best, except for our original history. It's got to be the best history in the church, but I got to go through it and try to preserve everything. So, okay. So what was the one thing you said about the books? Oh, at our conference, I have to say, in my view, it was the best conference for acknowledging the songs of zion um was this conference and uh, brother peter scalero said some wonderful things about the songs of zion and other gifts of the church and we sang a lot of them at the conference and it's been a long road now years ago we had an apostle brother joe lavalvo he told my mother he said he believed that the songs of zion was the greatest thing to come forth since the restoration of the gospel that's what he believed. He never said it uh, from the pulpit. He told her personally. So there were those who did, you know, believe. I, it's been a slow process. You know, one time I was watching this man. He was a, you know, an old man. Maybe he was in his 80s or 90s or whatever. He was a minister of another church, but he began to believe things that the that the Baptist didn't believe, okay? So finally he gets up the courage to tell them he has these new beliefs and they got rid of them, okay? So what his synopsis of the whole thing was, change takes place very slowly. And I can testify to that. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's still coming around. It's still coming around. So, and I can't answer you know why other people do what they do it's it was difficult but we had joy that's all i can say especially our little branch you have to have a place of solace you have to have a safe place a bethany where something like that can grow and be supported i remember my aunt jean on the old black typewriter you know with the ribbon and non-electric typing out the words in the beginning my aunt kathleen who played the piano trying to you know, make the chords and everybody and our sisters editing. I started typing. My mom said, I didn't even know you could type. I said, yes, I took like three years of it in high school, you know, but we all pitched in to do that work. And that's how it's been ever since. And um, also sister Alicia Champagne, uh, she works at an appliance company. And here one day somebody returned a computer and it had a program in there and there was no way for them to know uh you know who turned it in or whatever but it was a program where you could make music book ready and she's been doing it ever since she was my mom's right arm helped her with the copyrights uh when you see the songs in the book that's her work you know it went from brother eugene or to brother phil to sister lisa there were others who checked and you know did the editing and I feel like I've jumped around a lot, but there was a lot of glory involved, oh, but it was great. not an easy road. <laughs> wow. No, this is great because it's it's actually kind of cool because the story hasn't been fully told yet. The The last no. song hasn't been put on to, to paper yet. Uh, so right. this 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 gift is still manifesting. The story is still developing and where this yes. hymnal and what it's going to impact on your church and and that's fantastic you know even patrick mckay even told me about how he wanted to if they, they could use some of her songs in his church services 
And then that that night she received a song for Patrick and his movement. That was the most marvelous thing. I just want to back up and say this. I don't know if we have time and I don't want to make it about me or anything like that. But I teach in my lady circle. That's what we ladies uplift circle. Okay. So one night I was teaching, asking you shall receive, knocking it shall be open, seeking you shall find, you know, ASK, ask. So, uh, but when I was studying that, the scripture came alive. Like I, oh, I felt like it was the most powerful scripture and it's in the Bible and the book of Mormon many times with a promise, you know, that's, that you will receive if it's according to God's will. So I went to lady circle and I taught that I just felt like when I went home that night that I could see an angel and I went to bed. I mean, the spirit of God, it was so beautiful and wonderful. It was like a gift to feel the scriptures come alive. And I went to bed that night and I wakened in the morning with the words, not my words. It was like somebody spoke it to me, the scatter to the restoration. Well, I never thought about anybody else in the restoration. We have the truth. You know, that's what we every, you know, we all believe we have the truth. And if, and if we didn't, uh, you know, how could we be convicted and go on and serve God our whole life? And so um, here, uh, when I, oh, when I awakened and I heard those words, immediately, immediately I knew if like Israel, they were scattered. They too shall be gathered together again, the scattered of the restoration. So I set out to know people in the restoration. And I feel like that was God's prompting because at the same time, the McKay's had this prodding where they were trying to gather the saints. And um, in the, in the temple lot uh, church, uh, Sister Deb Haynes, she had the experience, extend the hand of friendship which we were all closed off to one another and any efforts of coming together in the past never worked. I think, you know, for whatever reason, but I believe God showed me that one day he's going to gather the scattered to the restoration. So here we hear that after I had this experience, the McKays are at our world conference. Somebody tells me they're there, you know, and they hear about the songs designed there, I guess. And uh, so I told the sister was telling me, I said, I would love to be able to write to one of them and tell them my experience about the scattered of the restoration, because I really didn't know anybody. I wanted to know those other people. I wanted to hear what they had to say. I wanted to hear what they thought. I wanted to, he- I-, I wanted to see them, know them. And uh, here they came and they stayed at my parents' house, I think for five days. My dad joked, he said, even our in-laws never stayed that long or our relations, but it was like, it was so wonderful. And I can say this, we immediately felt a kinship with them. It was like being separated at birth. And my dad said, they came so humble, good, submissive, kind. My dad said, if they would have came any other way, it never would have worked. And we sat around that table, I think for five days, talking about the scripture and testimony and the songs of Zion. It was wonderful. It reminds me of uh, the quote from Oliver Cawdry when he says how they sat uh, under the voice of the prophet. He said, those were days never to be forgotten. And that's how I feel about that. When 
they came. Well, they were going to go away, I think, for two weeks on missionary work, and they were, uh, you know, try to gather up their people or whatever they were doing, and they said to my mom, um, we would like to have these songs to sing back in Zarahemla, which that's the, that's where they were going at the time. They live in Missouri. And my mom said, I have never granted anyone permission to use the songs outside of the Church of Jesus Christ. They're copyrighted. They're used by permission only. And she said, but I'll pray about it. And uh, so they left and went on their way. And here uh, she did pray about it. And uh, here the Lord gave her a song. And I have it open to this song because it's the most amazing answer. God answered her. It wasn't her. She got the words and the music. Do you want me to read it just in answer to? Okay. And this is what he gave her. And they were coming back for an answer. At, and this is God's answer, what we should be doing in the meantime, okay? As you labor in the vineyard, striving daily every hour, with compassion, make a difference. Pull another from the fire. Satan's fires are always burning. Carefully, he leads men down. But his awful grasp is broken when a lost one has been found. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, break the yoke of the oppressed, reach your hand to lift another and the Lord will do the rest. Now, this is where I believe he's speaking to the people of the restoration, which we refer to as saints. And I think there is a key here uh, to our future blessings. Come saints, build the old waste places, raise the old foundation high. Then our heritage will find us and our songs will fill the sky. And the chorus says, repair the breach, restore the pathways where our fathers walked so long. Oh, loose the bands, the heavy burdens and lend the weary ones a song. So my mother didn't have to ask anybody else what she should do with her gift. She prayed, God answered her. And when they come back and it was unprecedented, she never planned to do this. She had offers to sell the songs and make money. She said, we don't sell God's gifts. And they were for the church, you know? So here they came back and my mom had the answer, lend the weary ones a song. So they went away rejoicing, our dear friends for life. I love them like I love my own soul, you know, uh, like I love my own family. They're our family now. Would I want to go to Zion without them? Absolutely not. So I'm going to love them and all the people of the restoration and let God do the rest, right? One plants, one waters, but God gives the increase. So we don't have to worry about the how it's going to happen, but I know it. God, that's God's desire, just like it is for the whole world to bring his people into one body, and he's going to do that someday. So they went back, and so I don't know if you've had company at your house for a while, so it's, it's exhausting. You, you love it, but you're tired. So I live next door to my parents, which are both deceased, and so here we're sitting there talking about it, how wonderful. And then, and as my mother and father and I are sitting there, we notice that there's a little note on the piano leaning up against the lamp. Oh, go get that. Here it's from Joy McKay and Joy was there too. She was there for part of the trip, the first part. So here we go get the note and uh, 
It's from Joy. And she said, this trip has been a boon to my weary soul. How would that happen? That was God. It was a confirmation of the song and also uh, lending the songs to the weary, the scattered of the restoration. And there was pushback against that. Some people, someone said, you prayed until you got the answer that you wanted. No, that's not true. God, she asked and God gave it. And that's the will of God. Wow. You know, um, it was so wonderful to be out in Independence a few weeks ago. Uh, both you and I spoke at the Book of Mormon rally. And then the next day, um, there was a group of us meeting in Patrick McKay's uh, basement for a Sunday service. And there were representatives from many branches of the restoration. And I get there a little late. Um, and I sit down and then uh, out of the blue to end the service, uh, uh, Patrick goes, Brother Steve, will you do the closing prayer? And I thought, how many evangelicals have done closing prayers at a restoration service? And uh, I just want to read to you on my YouTube page, my about in the description, because I wrote this last September and I basically just threw something up there. I was just kind of putting things together. I threw some test videos up there and I just thought I better write something down. So this is how it uh, starts off is the intention of this channel is to be a unique place where all the expressions of the restoration can intersect with one another. Um, that's the main key thing. Uh, and then I also say it's not affiliated or endorsed by the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, Community of Christ, Church of Jesus Christ, or any restoration or remnant movement or expression. I didn't really think about that until later on, until I started interacting with Patrick. And I came back and reread it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's exactly what this channel is doing. Yes. That's <laughs> wonderful. I'm thrilled. Yeah, just I could, there could have been so many other things I could have written down. But those are the things that I wrote down, just kind of not even giving it much thought, just thought I better put something down. And I realized that, oh my goodness, this is exactly what's happening. And so folks, you gotta understand is I've got people talking to people. I facilitated a phone call yesterday where one man is a Orthodox conservative uh, LDS person who's gonna, I'm interviewing him next week. And the other person is one of the most famous ex-Mormons in the world. I mean, his excommunication was covered by the New York Times. I facilitated that I, I'm probably about the only person on the planet has both their phone numbers in my cell phone. They actually talked to each other on the phone yesterday and actually are, are having a conversation. And I thought this is really kind of, this is just a, things like this happen every day where, and I'm not trying to brag on anything with my channel. It just seems like all of a sudden I just kind of plop into this world and I get people talking to each other. And that's why I think I felt so attracted to your church and to what Patrick is doing, because I like the spirit of unity. The, the, where the spirit is, there's unity. And I believe as a Christian that so often these divisions that are on my side, of course, you know, there's plenty of them here. And I feel like, you know, we, we, we all just, we, we get into fights over stupid things. And we start churches because, well, they don't like a certain song or whatever it is. And there's all this division. I know that grieves the Lord to see his body being divided. And I think so I feel like when I say the restoration could perhaps teach us things is that, you know, what I see what Patrick's doing, it's on paper, it's an impossible endeavor for him. Right. To, right. And but yet in his own little way, he is making progress and he's, you know, and, and he's such a humble man. So when I little way, I don't mean that in a demeaning way. It's just he's the Lord's doing a work in a man that on paper, this, none of this should be happening. These conversations shouldn't be happening. And so to me, it's like, I think 
to be even just to be part of that in the sense of being able to talk to these people, but also see it happening in real time. It's a real gift, honor, and privilege that I'm able to have these interactions. And, and, and Becky, I just want to say, it's a real privilege that you coming on and telling the story. Uh, I think it's important that people hear Arlene's story, and I'm so glad we're getting it out there. Well, thank you. And talking about bringing people together. In the Book of Mormon, one of my favorite um, uh, passages is, or story, is that um, it says that Christ visited all nations, kindred, tongues, and people. He, vis he visited all nations of the earth, and it says he told them to write. And one of these days, those writings or those people are going to come together, and it is going to going to show that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. <laughs> so bringing people together, that's his desire. And I'll tell you, would you have time for a little experience about bringing the restoration together? Yeah. Okay. So there was a man, Chuck Smith. Um, somebody came to him and he lived in Florida and they were maybe in their seventies. I don't know. The apostle of the church came and said that, there was a dream. There was a warehouse out in Missouri that needed to be tended to. Boy, Chuck was ready to go. But his wife said, I'm not going to drop everything and sell my house on a lark. But God gave her a dream that there were a lot of precious jewels out there. So they went. And uh, but here Chuck had a dream when they were out there and he dreamt that he saw a car and it was all dissembled and he was trying to put it together and it was he couldn't do it. And, but uh, his grandfather, who was an apostle in the church, appeared and he told him how to put the car back together. And Brother Chuck said, and the motor was still good. And he said, Lord revealed to him that was the restoration, how it had become dissembled. Um, you know, there's that book, The Divergent Paths of the Restoration. But God's going to show us how to put it back together. And the motor is still good. Now, it's just like with the scattered of the house of Israel or the good of the whole earth. Not everybody's going to come, but God's going to bring his humble followers of the lamb and they'll make up his body one day. And so we look forward to that. And Brother Chuck wrote a commentary after his dream and saying how he looked forward to the gathering of the scattered of the restoration. How wonderful. And I always say, I think we'll meet some of the finest people we've ever met in our life. Hmm. Wow. You know, one thing I wanted to talk a little bit about just uh, uh, briefly is the, you know, in, in your church, women do have uh, biblical office uh, positions. Uh, you have the role of deaconess in your church. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Okay, well, I don't think in our history there's anything recorded about the origin or how it started that they began to um, ordain uh, women into the office of deaconess. But a deaconess is, you know, the female version of a deacon, but her responsibilities are to visit the sick. Uh, to assist the ministry if they need, you know, would you visit this one, maybe take care of the church, but they take care of the communion cloths and the vessels for serving communion, um, uh, the linens, you know, the white linen, and we set the table and then the ministry serves the communion. And um, I'm a deaconess. I was ordained, oh, I don't know how many years ago, but we believe it's a calling. Not everybody is a deaconess. My mother was never a deaconess. 
And uh, somebody, we were talking about this recently and um, well, I was with Sister Lisa. She said, I don't know how your mother would have had the time. God had something else for her to do. And, uh, but it's not ministry. It is to assist the church in providing things for sacrament and to take care of the sick, uh, maybe administering food or whatever is needed. So I just also too, I've, I've had conversations with people regarding your church and also um, the idea that females can play um, a prophetic role in the church uh, visa, basically a prophetess, if you will. That's, that's something that is within the con within context. That's, that's something that their church is open to the, of a, the idea of a, the, of like a prophetess or a female be serving in a prophetic role. um they're open to it in the mm -hmm. scripture um in real life there is no ordained prophet or mm -hmm. prophetess in our church okay but it's it's a role that's in it's in theory it's possible and i think that's oh, just interesting yeah. okay yeah, and i just find and that makes your church kind of unique in that females play a, a larger role in in the church uh than in a lot of the other restoration churches. And uh, I think that's kind of a, a cool thing that you guys have in your church is that the, 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 off, you know, the, the opportunity for females to play more of a role in, in this participating in the services and, and having like a ministerial, you know, helping people feed, you know, and all that kind of stuff, have a ministry type kind of thing. I think that, and of course, Arlene, you know, of course that was her ministry. Yes, um, they believe uh, that if God gives anyone a gift from God, um, to acknowledge that, but they are hesitant to like promote anyone to say a gift of profit or anything like that. Right. Yeah. But, but I'll tell you what, my grandmother did have an experience and there's a lot of people who maybe would balk at this, but years ago, um, our family believed Brother Al McCadman was a prophet, and he had understanding. One day he was reading the scripture and the, and the prophecies, and the Spirit spoke and said, your gift shall be knowledge, and we always believed that he had that gift. Personally, my family, let's say that. Well, I'll speak for my family. So here, um, and he was an apostle, and his son was an apostle, uh, Russell Cadman. These are Joel's Joel Gailey's grandparents and great-grandparents. So my grandmother, uh, brother Alma Cadman, used to come and visit the farm all the time and teach them the prophecies, which they embraced, and it became our beliefs. So um, my grandmother had a dream one time where brother Russell, apostle of the church, was sitting on the front porch of the farmhouse, and brother Alma came walking down the drive and Brother Russell rose to his feet under the power of God in the experience. This was a dream. And he said, he lifted up his arm, raised his hand, and he said, behold, a prophet of the Most High God. And um, so we always revered him, but that was not something um, that, you know, that's what we believe. But it was not, he was never like ordained an apostle and nobody since the rest, since um, the establishment of our church in 1862, nobody since William Biggerton has had that office, I do not believe. Right. Okay, well, this is a fascinating history. You know, Becky, I just want to thank you so much 
for sharing your mother's story. Um, it's been a real blessing and a privilege to have these conversations with people. Now, to my critics, I've been getting flack from uh, some uh, Christian apologists lately because uh, they're not really liking what I'm doing because uh, uh, I, I should be condemning you guys or telling you, you know, all these kind of things. And that's not the role that this channel's ever, it's to facilitate dialogue and have conversations and let people tell their stories. And I'm not there to proselytize, beat anybody over the head with my beliefs, but to have a real conversation. But to my critics, I just want to say, I have invited you to come and do a Zoom call with me and we can have a face-to-face -face meeting and I can tell you yeah. what I'm doing. And the funny thing is whenever I've, I give this offer, they just stop. They, it's like they want to comment and then they don't want to come on and talk to me. And I'll even offer you guys the opportunity to come onto my program if you want to discuss this. So I just want you to know my Josh Gailey interview, I, I did kind of stir up a hornet's nest with some Christians apologists. Um, and I just thought I should probably address that. But Becky, <laughs> thank you so much for well, coming. Well, I hope on. everybody's kind to me. Oh, they'll be kind to you. There's no, oh, nobody's going to go after you, man. I'll tell you, they love you. Um, <laughs> Your, your mom is, uh, it's, she, she sounds like she was a saint and uh, to hear her story is just absolutely fantastic. And uh, I just want to thank you again for coming on. And I just want to remind my audience to um, like and subscribe and don't forget to hit the like button um, and, uh, and also get the notification for when a new uh, videos come out. Uh, Becky, do you have any final words for my audience? Well, I hope I did a good job of telling my mother's story. It was divine and good and wonderful. Uh, I love the church. I love God. Since my experience, God put a love in my heart for the scattered of the restoration. I do look forward to the day when we come back together and build Zion. And um, one thing in the Book of Mormon, it said, when nothing else worked, bear down on them with a pure word of testimony. And I think testimony is important. If we don't tell our testimony uh, and tell what God has done for people, uh, he's alive. He's not on vacation. He's alive. And he still works today, just like he did back then. I thank you for the opportunity to share my testimony. I hope it will be beneficial and edifying. Nephi, the things that he wrote was the things that were edifying to the church. So that's what I'm would like to do as well so god bless you i enjoyed meeting you it's been wonderful and i believe the lord has inspired you in this work and bringing people together how could that be bad that's a good thing absolutely so thanks. god bless you god bless you and just a reminder everybody out there we're going to get through this epidemic together uh just use common sense follow the spirit and all will be well godspeed <laughs>